Well, Thanksgiving, either the week before Thanksgiving or the week after Thanksgiving, I'll do a message on gratitude. So it's, it's one of those themes of the Christian faith that we, we can't hear enough about. We certainly can't practice enough. Um, there's also something pastors do regularly, but I don't necessarily do it. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know. But they also preach on giving yearly, sometimes more. Today, I'm going to cover both. Gratitude and generosity. Now, if you're sitting there going, I'm visiting this church and they're going to talk about giving. Are you kidding me? I know people who come to church once a year and it's on the giving message, you know. And, um, and I always say, you know, God knows who's coming, nonetheless. So, um, but let me ask you this question before we jump into the text. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. I've used this expression of late, of um, it's just kind of flowing out of me the last six, eight months. It's certainly in Colossians I've been using it. It's the idea, do you want to be an instrument in the hands of God to minister to other people? You know, Colossians or, or Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And the idea there of, of um, workmanship, that's, that's um, it's actually the word poema in Greek, which means poem. Our word poem comes from it. It's this idea that God has crafted you to be an instrument in his hands to serve people. Do you want to be that instrument? Frank wants to. Does anybody want to join Frank? Okay, so you know I'm setting you up. That's why you didn't say anything, because you knew I was setting you up. I've, I've titled this sermon, A Life That Promotes Gratitude to God. Typically, um, typically, um, we, my sermon is on, are you grateful to him? Now I want to talk about a life you live that other people will be grateful to him because of the way you treat them. By the way, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I already said that. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, please keep it. So a life that promotes gratitude to God. I'm just going to um, give the premise right up front. Your generosity causes the recipients to thank and praise God. That's really the conclusion of my message, but I want to start with that. Your generosity will cause the recipients of your generosity to give thanks and praise to God. Does that make sense? I want to read you a passage. It's right in the middle of a context, um, but I want to read it to you. And then we're going to end the message on this same paragraph. But I want you to see in here three times how... The Corinthians' generosity would produce gratitude in the recipients. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. We'll, we'll unpack all of this in a bit. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So there's a lot here, and I realize I, I've dropped into a passage where this is Paul's conclusion from chapter 8. But I wanted you to see that three times, the Corinthians' generosity to others 
would produce in them gratitude. Not only would the Corinthians be grateful to God, but they live such a life that others are grateful to God. And in the third time, it says they will glorify him. So that's the instrument I'm talking about. Do you want to be the type of person, the instrument that God uses to other people say, because of Frank, God has been good to me. Thank you, God. A gratitude to God for what he's done, and Frank was his instrument, or you were his instrument. That's where we're going today. Now, whenever we talk about giving, in this church, if you're visiting today, we don't pass a plate. We have offering boxes in the back. It's a very low-pressure church on money. Obviously, the church needs, needs resources to survive. Someone's got to pay the power bill. Um, someone's got to pay me. Power bills first. <laughs> but I'm not the kind of guy that likes to do the heavy hand, give, give, give. Because when I give the heavy hand, give, 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 what do you do? You shut down, don't you? Or you feel guilty and you give for a little while. But usually guilt doesn't motivate people for long, does it? doesn't motivate me for long. In fact, it just ticks me off. So conviction of the spirit is the spirit's job, not mine. Mine is hopefully to bring the word in a manner that you can, can, can receive it and think through it. Um, so today, though, what I'm talking about is not going to be about giving to this church. What I'm going to propose to you, every year we do a year in gift. And that year in gift is usually split between someone local and someone foreign because they have needs. Who receives this year in gift hasn't been determined yet. We're working through that now. But I want you to think, have that filter that as we talk through the principles here of generosity that produces gratitude, I want you to realize this isn't a sermon about give more to this church. This is a sermon about a life of generosity to be an instrument in God's hands to see other people blessed and he's praised. So with that, let me give you the backstory to this passage. Paul is writing to the Corinthians because there's a famine in Jerusalem. The gospel started in Jerusalem, moved out from Jerusalem, went north into Antioch, into Turkey, into Europe, and now Paul's in Europe writing to the Corinthians saying, hey, the gospel started back in Jerusalem, but those Christians there are in the middle of a famine, and they don't have anything to eat. So, so you can supply their needs. That's the backstory. And he uses the Macedonian churches as an example of someone who did this. So if, if you know your, your geography of Europe, if you think of Greece as the, the, the country of Achaia and Corinthians is a town in that, then think north of that, which is Macedonia, um, that's where the Philippians were. And so Paul is going to use the Philippians in the region of Macedonia as the example of generosity to, to motivate the Corinthians. You get it? Okay, let's go to chapter 8 now and talk about the Macedonians set the example. As we do this, I want us to look for principles here. This is a very spe historically specific situation. A famine in Jerusalem where Paul is raising money from the Gentile Christians to help the Jewish Christians. Very historically conditioned. And we ask the question today, what, is, what are the principles from this passage that apply to me today? What are the principles that I can grab and say, that's what God is teaching me today? 
So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 5. Let's look at the Macedonians as the example. When I say Macedonians, think Philippians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So, so how much did they have? Extreme poverty. But the way it's described there is their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. So they have nothing. They're in need. But there's an opportunity put before them to help people who have less than even they have. And the idea of abundance of joy. So this isn't the idea of, of um, grudgingly, oh, I guess I got to do this. I don't want to do this. Whenever the attitude of giving is, I don't want to do this, then don't. Because that's not what the leaders of the church should want. And we'll see here that God wants joyfulness in our generosity. Um, so the Philippians, in their poverty, were joyful. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. We're going to learn the principle here in a minute that give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. And, and imagine people who are in poverty, how much do they really have? What story of Jesus comes to your mind when I say that? People who are in poverty can give an awful lot compared to those who are wealthy by comparison. What story comes to your mind? The widow's might. Jesus is sitting in the temple treasury as people are coming by and dropping in their offerings for the, the, the temple. You know, the temple has the needs. And so people are coming by and giving out of their excess and this, this elderly woman, Jesus says, you can just imagine a woman maybe older and hunched over, maybe walking on a cane, walks up and drops two um, mites, two little coins that probably equaled a penny today. Drops it in and Jesus says she gave more than anybody else because she gave out of her need, not out of her surplus. So that's what the Philippians did. We don't know how much, but... Whatever they could give, they gave with joyfulness. In verse 8, 4, it said, Beyond, of their own accord, they weren't manipulated of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So you can imagine begging us. You can imagine here Paul saying, you guys, you don't have anything. You, you don't got to do this. You need help. Oh, Paul, you got to let us take part in this. You got to let us give. Paul, please take our money. Can, can you imagine the heart of these Philippians? That they're begging Paul, please let us be involved. We'll do without if they can have something. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. And for me personally, that is, um, that's the core truth right there. The Philippians first grasped what God had done for them and gave their lives to him. Then there was something that flowed from that. They're going to give their lives to somebody else. So it wasn't duty. It wasn't obligation. It wasn't this begrudging thing. There was an understanding. Jesus has done this for me. It's going to be natural. I'm going to do it for somebody else. Dire financial circumstances did not hinder them. I was trying to figure out where to put my own testimony in here. I'm going to put it here now. Um, 
Dan Frank, who's the pastor at Grace Church in Reno, where I served for 23 years. If you've come here often, you know I, I was a pastor at Grace Church in Reno for 23 years. I was associate pastor. Dan Frank, the senior pastor, remember when I first got there, he gave a sermon. And he talked about the fact that there's two conversions in most Christians' lives. There's the conversion of the heart to Jesus. And sometime later, the conversion of the pocketbook to Jesus. And that was me. That was me. I became a Christian in 1979. Um, like most people, newly married, uh, you know, actually then I wasn't married, but within the year I was married. Within the next year I was at a baby and um, we had nothing. And I wanted to be generous. I actually felt guilty for the things I had because other people didn't have anything. I wanted to be generous, but I found myself holding back because I wasn't sure I could really trust God to supply my needs. And that was 1979, I got saved. 1987, I went to Bible college. Then 1991, I went to seminary. 93, came back. Got hired at Grace Church in 94. Some were talking 15 years after I became a Christian. It wasn't until then that I decided I'll trust God with my finances. I'm a pastor before I decided to trust God with my finances and, and, and learn what generosity means because I didn't believe God would do what he said he would do. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I bet many of you in this room are like me, that our world, especially with this upcoming year, this past year and the upcoming year of dire financial predictions, which sells newspapers. Does anyone buy newspapers anymore? Which causes you to click on things. Um, we, better, we better store it up. I better cut back on my generosity to other people because I may need it. Well, that's how I lived for 15 years. It wasn't until I was a leader in a church that I said, well, I better figure this out. So we'll come back to these principles. Christ incarnation is the paradigm for our generosity. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. Christ incarnation is the paradigm for our generosity. I say this not as a command. This Paul says this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now that that's a, a powerful phrase there. Because you know, say, I can say, I love you guys, but yet I don't step in to fulfill your needs. And according to the book of 1 John, that's not love. Here's an opportunity for them to prove their love was genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is a powerful passage here, you guys, in that if you, if you think money, Jesus was wealthy in heaven, became human, he was poor, then he, he died, buried, rose again, so that you can become monetarily rich. That's not what he's saying. It's using the imagery of wealth to describe who Jesus was before the incarnation. He was in glory. He, he was there basking in the worship of angels. As, as the doctrine, the beautiful doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they equally are filled with glory. But the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ, the second member of the Trinity, emptied himself. He gave up his glory. And became a man. And you know the passage that in, in that descent from glory and leaving that glory and becoming human, born truly into a poor family, 
and ultimately being beaten silly and murdered on the cross. That's the depth of his poverty. And what did that murder on the cross do for you? Because Christ was raised from the dead, he now has the power to give you spiritual life, eternal life, which is wealth, it's riches. Because he became poor in the incarnation because of his deep love for you. It's allowed you now to be the recipient of his work. And you sit here today, if you follow Jesus Christ, wealthier than anyone in the world because you have the spirit of God in you who's caused you to be born again and give you the life of Christ and he's conforming you to his image. That's true riches. He is our paradigm. So as we move through 2 Corinthians, we want to use that paradigm. Jesus did this for me. He's given his spirit to me and making me like him. So how now, if this is what he did, how now should I live? So in your generosity, Paul tells us that you give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Verses 10 to 15. And in this matter, I give my judgment. Then notice before he said, I don't command you. And now I give my judgment. This is not the apostle Paul claiming authority over your life and you better do what he says. And this is clearly not Pastor Tony telling you to do what I say because as soon as I say, you better do what I say, what are you going to say? You can't even say it in church what you would say to me if I said that. So, so um, Paul here is not using the authority of an apostle. He's using the persuasion of a preacher that understands the gospel and is trying to get them to grasp the ramifications of what Christ has done for you should be life-changing in the way you live your life. In the way, if you live your life like Christ did, then that will produce glory and praise and gratitude for him. So give according to what you have. We're going to... Um, Chapter 8, verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. When a year ago, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also a desire to do it. So the Corinthians, you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the letter before this one. Paul says, hey, on the first day of the week when you gather, take a collection for the poor. So they were willing to do it. They were, st they were stepping into it. But something happened where it got, it, maybe they had a COVID or something and it knocked everything off course. And Paul is now coming back and saying, hey, you restarted it. Now pick up the ball. Verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desire in it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What we don't want, one is comparison. Well, Frank has more than me. I'm picking, always pick on Frank. You shouldn't sit there, Frank, because you're easy to pick on. Frank has more than me, so he should give more. It's about what has God blessed me with? What has he trusted me with? That's the basis of my generosity. I can be like the Philippians and choose to give beyond and actually put myself in need, but that's not what Paul's saying here. That, that was commended, but that's not required. It's the idea of you give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness, or some translation, a matter of equality. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need 
that, they may be, that there may be fairness or equality. As it is written, whoever has gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. That's a quote from Exodus where they were picking up manna in the wilderness. And so it's just a, it's, it's an analogy. So here, here's what it is. Today in our political situation, we talk about equity or equality. And all of a sudden, all this other stuff comes out. We go, oh, I'm not sure I'm into this, you know. And, and we don't trust the media. We don't trust politicians. Get rid of all that for the moment. In the Christian church, voluntarily saying, God has given me more than I need today. And my friends over there are people I don't even know over there don't have what they need. By way of equality, I will share what my excess to help someone in their need. Because someday they may have an excess and I may have a need. If we have this mentality within the Christian church, it's not about accumulating. It's about sharing. And this is a principle that I still struggle with. And I think as a general rule, so do all of you. That's not an accusation. It's an observation that... We tend to think, this is mine. I worked hard for it. How many of you worked hard for what you have? So half of you didn't work hard for what you have? And, um, and I fully believe you, you worked hard for what you have. And some people who don't work hard don't have much because they need to work hard. But I say this before, but do you know there are people all over the world that work harder than we do? And they ate one meal a day. So God has blessed us and put us into a world where our hard work pays off. So let's, let's remember, yes, your hard work produced what you have. But God put you in a place where your hard work paid. So let's remember, it's still a gift from him. Does that make sense? So now back to my original question. This is in your notes. It's a long title. It's a question. Do you want to be an instrument in God's hands to bless others so that he receives the glory due his name? Read that with me. Do you want to be an instrument in God's hands to bless others so that he receives the glory due his name? Do you understand the body of Christ? We are the body of Christ. Christ is the head. The head of your body runs the rest of the body. Jesus is the head and we are the body. We are his instruments. We are what he communicates with the world through. And we're all different parts of that body. And so do we want to be the kind of person that Jesus says, you know what, I'm using him because he, he wants to be used in other people's lives. Do you ever find an instrument that is difficult to use? I, I have a lot of tools in my garage because they look good, but I don't use them much. Um, that's not true. But I love a sharp knife. I can't stand a dull knife. So we have our knife drawer. Teresa is the chef, if you know Teresa. She's the chef. I'm the one that chops and stores things. And, and I got to have a sharp knife. And so I, in my knife drawer, I have a knife sharpener. And every time I pull the knife out, I sharpen the knife before I use it. I want a knife that is an instrument that just glides through things. The frustration of a dull knife when you have to cut things is horrible. Did I say something wrong? So this is the poor analogy. 
But do you want to be the sharp knife in God's hands or the dull knife? No, rather, which are you and which am I? It's just a question. This isn't, please understand me. If you know me, you know my, my motive is not guilt. Hopefully it's motivation. As the next passage now we're going to see, we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 6. If we grasp this idea of who I am in God and what he wants to use me for, it will change our lives. And it will change the lives of multiple people. Just the 100 people in this room can have an unbelievable impact in this community and beyond if we grab, grasp these principles. So chapter 9, verse 6, we're starting there. Again, we're just dropping in the middle of the context of Paul talking to them. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, this is a, this is a common agricultural truth. If I take a handful of seed and put it in the ground, I'm going to get what that handful of seed produces. If I take a bag of seed and put it in the ground, I treat them the same, I'm going to get a huge bounty. Does that make sense? So, each one must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is the word hilarion. Some preachers say it means to be hilarious in your giving. Um, Our word hilarious does come from that Greek word hilarion, but it didn't mean hilarious then like it means today. So that that would be a, a poor use of a word study. The idea of cheerful, though, is the opposite of grudgingly. And how many times have you given to someone on the street somewhat grudgingly because you felt like you had to because he was standing next to your car window? We've all done that. It's kind of like, it's just easier to give this and he'll go away maybe. Um, As opposed to, God wants me to bless this person. Cheerfully. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may be abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. So so look at that verse again, verse 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times you may abound in every good work. Here's the principle. If I give this away, then I'll be lacking. But what God's telling us here, and he's going to really expand it in the next verses. If I give this away, he will come behind that and give me more to supply all my needs and have a larger cash to help other people. Does that make sense? What's the first step, though? Here's the first step. Last week, the lottery was $2 billion. If you'd have bought a ticket and you won, then you'd have plenty to share, right? How many did it? No one won in this room. That's not, God's not saying, hey... Let me give a boatload to you first, then start being generous. He's saying, test me. You see a need? Why don't you meet that need and watch what I do in your life and supply for your needs and more so the next time there's a need, you do that too. And then I give you more, your needs are still met, and there's three times opportunity, four times, five times. 
It's an incredible truth that do we trust God enough? So let's start in verse 10 now. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing many thanksgiving to God. Do we believe God when he says, Frank, if you'll do this, I'll bring an abundance your way. Not for your bank account, but to meet your needs. But now you have a supply to double who you help. Do we trust God to do that? I didn't for 15 years. And I'm still working through what level of trust I have of him. You know, as Teresa and I are now planning, um, I call it the post-W2 years. You know, next year when transition happens, um, we won't have regular paychecks. So let's, let's step back and hoard. Because what God has been good to us the last several years, will he continue to be good to us? So this is a new test for Teresa and I. When we have an abundance, it's easy to give abundantly. But now when we step back and say this thing called fixed income, um, will I continue the pattern of giving beyond what my selfishness wants? Because I know he will do what he promises. God supplies seed to the sower. If you want to put a handful out, guess what he's going to give you back? A little more than a handful. If you want to put an entire 20-pound bag out, he's going to give you a 30-pound bag to meet all your needs. Remember, needs, not all wants. This isn't the prosperity gospel. This isn't give $10 so you get 100. They've completely twisted these things, those preachers have. This is about being an instrument in the hands of God, a sharp knife to see praise and thanksgiving rise to him because you and I decided to believe God's promises and be generous to others. How many went to the Awaken Banquet? My understanding, I wasn't there. Um, I understand that. Oh, do you guys know what Awaken is in the room? Awaken is a ministry in Reno that helps um, women get out of sex trafficking. It's, it's an unbelievable ministry. And, and they do a lot of good work. They have a lot of expenses. So they do a fundraiser every year. This year, they had a guest speaker from another ministry. Was she from Africa, the other speaker? She was from here? Okay. I wasn't there. I, I'm hearing these stories. Um, tells a story of her ministry. And I guess Melissa, who's the head of Awaken, gets up and says, listen, if you want to give to Awaken today, you can. But if you want to, why don't you give your giving that you plan to give, give it to that ministry. Do, do you know what that is? That is a person who has needs, Awaken. They have tons of needs. They exist on donations. And somebody comes along and gives a testimony at the banquet that is raising money for Awaken. And Melissa, who's a, who's a treasure to the kingdom of God, says, you know what? 
Take the money you're going to give to us, give it to them. We'll do without. Guess what God's going to do for Awaken? If this is true, going to meet every one of their needs and beyond so they can continue to minister to women being rescued from sex trafficking. That's a principle. It takes great courage and great faith to do that. Did I, what, did I finish reading this? Probably not. Where did I stop? For 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ. Meaning, from your, in other words, because I confess the gospel of Christ, I grasp what it is. There's a certain submission in my life that I give my life to it. If I, if I haven't submitted to who, what, who God is and who Christ is, I don't understand the gospel. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What's the inexpressible gift? It's in the very previous verse. The surpassing grace of God upon you. Ephesians puts it this way, that God has lavished his grace upon you. Not just poured a little, not just rubbed a little in, lavished it. He has taken, just back then they'd take olive oil and pour it over your head and just doused you, just drowned you in his grace. That's what God does with his grace. And so Paul ends this section with that phrase, thanks be to God for the, his inexpressible grace. So once again, I think we all want to be that person, that sharp knife in the hand of God, that we're an instrument to do his mercy in people's lives. I think we all want to be that person. But, but we, we fear. And we watch the headlines and we say, recession's coming. I'm not sure what a recession is compared to where we're living today, but a recession's coming. And um, I, I better hoard, I better not share. And I want to say to each one of us and myself specifically, um, let's not give in to fear. Let's not give in to fear. God has given you life from that grace. We yearn to be his instrument, but we have some concerns and fears and reservations. So the way to face those is just that, face them. Where will you start? Where will you start? Start somewhere. We'll figure out this year and gift in the next week or so. And say, you know what, that's what I'm going to give towards. Or say, you know what, no, I'm called over here. I'm asking you, the church budget's very important. Thank you if you're a faithful giver to this church. This church budget's very important. And, and you guys typically every year rise up to it and we meet it. Um, I don't want to minimize that. But I want to say this. We get catalogs in the mail every year from three organizations that we support that, that help the poor. And these catalogs are things you can buy for families. Instead of just giving cash, you can buy a couple goats then to start their own goat farm. We were in Peru, and one of the things you could buy is guinea pigs to start a guinea pig farm because they eat guinea pigs down there. I couldn't do it. So I bought pigs and goats. I didn't buy guinea pigs. But it was a way for us to think through, wow, these people need this. We're going to take some of our money that we normally just waste, not waste, not waste. Um, thank you. I've got to be careful. My grandchildren might be listening. We would bless our grandchildren with, and they have more than enough so, so 
this year, maybe it's something like that. Do start somewhere to say, God, I have the faith to do a handful. This year, I want to do two handfuls. And forgive me, God, but to test you. The only time it says in the Bible to test God is in the area of giving. Malachi tells us to test him and watch what he does in your life. He'll cause your, the bounty to overflow if we will follow through and trust him. So there's two conversions, Dan Frank told me. One of the heart, which I gladly did in April 1979. And one of the pocketbook, which I somewhat grudgingly did in August of 2000, excuse me, August of 1994. I've learned over the years, though, in God's patience with me, that that was a phenomenal thing to do, and, and he has blessed it and trusted me with more resources to give to others. I want to go from four hands to the 20-pound bag. Will you think about that with me? Father, our desire is to truly be grateful to you for what you've given us. And Lord, now instill in us a desire to be instruments of yours so others are grateful because of the way you used us. Um, give us courage to step into this. Give us faith to trust you. We say you are utterly trustworthy, that you always keep your promises. Um, we believe that at one level. I do, Lord. Other levels, I, I have my doubts. God, so as the one person said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And um, thank you, Lord, so much for your love, for your mercy, your grace, and, and for me, for your patience. We, we love you. In Christ's name, amen.